So the one piece of advice that I would give to the women in the audience, none of us, I would say, in this seat here have had a very clear idea about what our future would hold. We've been open to opportunity. We've been open to failure. We've been resilient through failure, because I can tell you I've had a lot of failures, and you just keep going. And it's the journey, not the destination, that's the most enjoyable part of life. It's about the partnerships that we form, the relationships that we have, and at the end of the day, the people we love that make it all worthwhile. Welcome to a special episode of Eavesdrop on Experts, where we encourage experts to obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. On the 11th of March 2020, producers Sylvie Van Wall and Arch Cuthbertson attended the International Women's Day event called My Brilliant Career. It was held by the MDHS at the University of Melbourne. It featured six female leaders in the field of child health, who spoke about their career journeys, lessons learned and advice to younger people. We've captured the event here, so without further ado, we bring you My Brilliant Career. All right, well, good evening, uh, everyone, and a very warm welcome to you all to tonight's event, which is to celebrate International Women's Day, uh, which actually took place on Sunday, for those of you who don't know. Um, And I'm hoping all the women here tonight had a chance on that day to put your slippers on, maybe sit back, relax, feet up. Yes? No? (laughs) Anyway, I'm Professor Sarah Wilson. I'm head of the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences, and I'm exceptionally proud to be hosting this event, Celebrating Women's Brilliant Careers, on behalf of the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. I'd like to open this event first by acknowledging the traditional custodians of this land on which we meet tonight, the Wurundjeri people, and pay my respects to the elders of the Kulin Nation, both past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be here with us tonight. Woman Jaker. I'd also like to acknowledge our Dean, Professor Shidij Kapoor, for his support in making this event happen. And also to all of the professional staff who have worked very diligently behind the scenes to make this night come about. I'd also like to acknowledge the great International Women's Day event hosted last year by Professor Fabian Mackay and her team in the School of Biomedical Sciences. Okay, so this year, the International Women's Day campaign theme is hashtag each for equal. And so if you feel inspired by the speakers that you listen to tonight, please feel free to get your phones out and tweet away, not chat, but tweet away under the hashtag UniMelbMDHS Hashtag generation equality. I hope you've got that. Each for equal draws on the idea that an equal world is an enabled world, a world that works at its best. It also captures the idea that for each of us, when we work collectively, we work our best to making a more equal gendered world. A world, for instance, where we have 
gender equal boardrooms. Imagine that. A gender equal government. Gender equal media coverage. Gender equal workplaces. Gender equal sports coverage. And more gender equality in delivery of health and access to wealth. So at its heart, this theme highlights that equality is not a women's issue, it's an issue for all of us to engage in, and to engage in us now, for building economic and social capital for the future. So this International Women's Day marked a call for action, for us to accelerate our collective efforts towards gender equality. And tonight provides us, I think, with the opportunity to reflect on our own individual efforts, what we might be doing, and the efforts of our peers, the people that we, we work with, to create gender equality in our everyday life. So to actively choose to challenge stereotypes that might exist in our immediate environment, to fight the bias which we know is often implicit in our thinking when it comes to distribution of roles and responsibilities, to broaden our perceptions and to improve situations that we see happening in front of us, to make a difference daily. But also tonight to pause and reflect and recognise the achievements that we've made and to celebrate those achievements as they relate to five very inspirational women. So we're going to focus tonight on the career pathways of five women who have worked in health and medical sciences. And by way of a broader background, I'm very proud to inform you that under the leadership of Professor Marilise Gilliman, that our university was recently awarded an Athena Swan Bronze Award for its commitment to advancing gender equity and promoting greater inclusion in science, technology, engineering, mathematics and medicine. They're the so-called STEM-M disciplines. And basically, the Bronze Award recognises that our university has demonstrated an understanding of its current state of gender equity, or lack thereof, and has committed to a four-year action plan to address what are the identified challenges in the STEM-M disciplines. And I think very importantly, this more broadly reflects um, a very strong passion of our new Vice-Chancellor who is committed to inclusion and diversity and which is now core to the university's new 2030 strategic plan. Now, some of you may also not know that the Royal Children's Hospital is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year. That's 150 years, it's remarkable. And so tonight, with that in mind and these themes of STEM-M, the speakers that you're going to hear from have been selected because they've devoted their careers to health, health sciences, but also with a particular focus on children and adolescents. 
And others amongst us who are going to also speak have focused on policy and influencing politics, so making a difference at that global level. And they, each speaker has been asked to share with you their journey of working in health, to provide their unique perspectives and experiences, to give us some advice, particularly for the younger people here in the audience tonight who may be thinking about pursuing a career in health and health sciences. They're going to talk about the lessons that they've learned because there's always failure along the way as well as success. And then hopefully they're going to give us some of their hard-earned tips that might help us also experience success. Then in terms of the order of proceedings, after you've heard from each speaker, there will be time at the end for you as an audience to bring forward questions and things that you'd like to discuss with the panel members. So I'd now like to introduce you to our panel moderator, Professor Megan Muncy, and our remarkable lineup of speakers who are all sitting down the front. So a little bit about Megan. She's the Deputy Director of the Centre for Stem Cell Systems in the School of Biomedical Sciences here at the University. Most notably, I think, Megan has combined her extensive technical expertise in stem cell science with a very important and under-looked at issue in terms of the complex ethical, social and regulatory issues associated with stem cells, both as they relate to research but also to clinical practice. She's going to moderate this evening and she's going to be joined by our panel members and they include Associate Professor Margie Danchen, who is a consultant paediatrician at the Department of General Medicine at the Royal Children's Hospital, and Associate Professor and David Bickett Clinician, Scientist Fellow at the Department of Paediatrics here at the University, as well as at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Now, Margie is an immunisation expert with over 10 years of experience in vaccine research and clinical work both here in Australia, but also in resource-poor settings internationally. Next is Dr Elise Wilson, who is a Public Health Registrar and Senior Research Officer at the Burnett Institute. And she's also a lecturer in Indigenous Health and Nutrition in the Department of Medical Education at the University of Melbourne. Elise is a Public Health Doctor working in global maternal child health and nutrition, but she has additional qualifications quite remarkably in nutrition, dietetics, obstetrics and gynaecology, and public health. She, she kind of covers it all. Uh, and she's got over 10 years of experience in conducting translational research, public health program design, implementation and policy development, Again, both in the local setting, but also international settings. Next is Dr Valerie Sung. She's a paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital and Senior Research Fellow at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, as well as the Director of the Caring for Hearing <coughs> Impaired Children Clinic at the Royal Children's Hospital. And her vision, I think very inspiringly, is to provide the best care she can to treat her patients, the children that she sees, and the families, whilst also conducting 
clinical and population research with these same individuals to optimise their care. Next is Cara Simpson. She's a little bit closer to home for me. Um, she's one of the PhD candidates in, in my school, so it's terrific to have her here on the panel. She's a tutor and also a health promotion consultant. And she also has an affiliation with the Melbourne Neuropsychiatry Centre at the university. Now, her current research program spans the biomedical sciences, including medical microbiology, psychology, neuroscience, and gastroenterology. And her research as part of the bugs and brains study is investigating a very exciting new area in science, that of the gut microbiota in anxiety, depression, and irritable bowel syndrome. And last, but by no means least, I think we have a very special panelist here with us tonight, Dr. Katie Allen, MP. She's our current federal member of parliament for Higgins and has lived in the Higgins electorate for over 40 years after growing up in Albury in New South Wales. Now, Katie was sworn in as a member for Higgins in the opening of the 46th Parliament in Canberra. But prior to that, she had an illustrious career as a paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital for 28 years and was a professor here at the university and at the University of Manchester as well as Director of the Population Health Research Theme at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Now, Katie has a very busy schedule, and I particularly want to thank you for taking time out in that schedule to share with us your story tonight. But first now, please join me in welcoming Associate Professor Margie Danchin to the lectern to share her story. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak tonight. Um, it's really lovely to be here with all of you, and I think this year International Women's Day has been celebrated on such a, a grand scale. I've certainly attended a lot of fabulous events. So I'd like to um, say that science has really been an amazing um, and rewarding career for me, and I'd like to share, share my very non-linear journey with all of you and some of my pitfalls and pearls along the way. I was just sharing with Megan that I'm turning 50 this year, so it's been a lovely opportunity for me to sit back actually and reflect over my career um, at the Royal Children's Hospital where I've been for nearly 23 years. So I am a general paediatrician at the Royal Children's Hospital. Um, I work um, both on the wards and in outpatients, but also in the immunisation service. But I guess more importantly and more relevant to tonight's discussion is I've been a clinician scientist for nearly 20 years and my research passion is really around the effectiveness and utilisation of vaccines across the lifespan. My early postdoctoral um, career was working within the RV3 rotavirus vaccine um, clinical trials program, which um, included Professor Ruth Bishop, who discovered rotavirus, and Professor Julie Bynes. I had the opportunity to work on vaccine clinical trials in um, Australia and Melbourne, in New Zealand and in Indonesia. 
But I also did um, uh, quite a significant array of general paediatric research. I did some research with Katie Allen in allergy and, and in anxiety and in behaviour. But I really, over the last five years, um, I think found my true north and my passion uh, with relation to vaccines. And that's really focusing on strategies to improve vaccine confidence, demand and uptake. But again, as I was just sharing with Megan, I think for me it's also given me an opportunity to step back from some of the more traditional research methodology, quantitative research methods and embrace qualitative research and to work with an extraordinary array of researchers in social science, political science, communication, implementation research, as well as the vaccinologists and infectious diseases physicians that I've been working with um, for many years previously. So what is it that our group does? Well, we really do research to understand and diagnose the barriers to under-vaccination and to develop interventions um, to improve uptake in high-risk groups. So particularly at the moment, my research is focusing on improving um, maternal vaccination, um, early childhood vaccination, but also improving vaccination in children with developmental disabilities, and we have a strong focus in low- and middle-income settings. With the introduction of the no jab uh, immunisation policies in 2016, we've also been looking very hard at evaluating these policies and the uh, sort of negative unintended consequences that they may have um, and the impacts on immunisation policy. So a very strong focus on women and children. But particularly with the coronavirus um, situation that we find ourselves in now globally, I think it's really important when we try and um, understand why people may choose not to vaccinate when it's clearly such an effective intervention. It's critical that we listen and understand and engage with people to build trust for them to accept something like an intervention, um, like immunisation. So more recently, in the last couple of years, um, I've been working more closely with the World Health Organization, spending quite a bit of time in Geneva, which has obviously been quite a bit of travel, and also in the Western Pacific region, particularly in the Philippines, where I worked with WHO on a workshop, workshop sorry, to rebuild trust and confidence in the National Immunisation Program Vaccines for Children after a particular vaccine safety scare from the Dengvaxia vaccine. You may recall at the start of last year, there was a terrible outbreak of measles in the Philippines where over 400 people died, mostly children. I've also been working with the newly formed DFAT-funded Australian Regional Immunisation Alliance, again to build capacity, particularly in the Western Pacific region, to improve uptake of vaccines for women and children. But more importantly, I'm very proud that I lead an all-female team of researchers who are incredibly talented and come from a diverse array of disciplines, as I've just described. Also, over the last year, I've become the Director of Clinician Scientist Pathways, and that has given me the opportunity within the Melbourne Medical School to really embrace the university, even though I've been involved in the university since I was a medical student. So what does that mean? Well, we're focusing on developing the clinician-scientist track right from the um, redesign of the MD or the medical degree, looking at the creation of MD-PhD pathways for, for particularly um, bright students who choose to do that, but also looking at clinician-scientist pathways during clinical training for um, clinicians who want to do PhDs, that's going to be incorporated into a new initiative called the MAC track through the, the MAC. 
And then, of course, to support postdoctoral fellowships and pathways, which are incredibly hard to support, um, particularly for, for women, um, and to look at um, ways to support and optimise um, their pathway. And it's really exciting for me to have the opportunity to promote women to reach the highest levels in clinical research. But I think more importantly, I'm a mum to four kids. I have a son who's 17 and in year 12 and maybe facing school closure and doing his year 12 from his bedroom, which he thinks is fabulous. <laughs> and I have three daughters um, who are 10, 13 and 15. So they've always really been my first priority and given me absolute perspective when it comes to work. But it has been hard. I think um, as many of the women here on the panel I'm sure are gonna talk about tonight, Combining um, clinical research um, and, and a young family is very challenging. I've always worked part-time until the last year, only three or four days a week. So I really understand the importance of a flexible and inclusive workplace. And it's certainly what I try and create for my own team. So what have been the turning points for me in my career? Well, there were two things that really stood out when I asked myself that question. The first was strong belief from senior people at very opportune times. For me in year 12, when I had no idea what I wanted to do, the, one of the previous governors of Victoria, uh, Professor David de Kretzer, who was a family friend, really came to me out of the blue and just showed an enormous interest in my career and in me and encouraged me to do medicine. And it wasn't actually anything I'd considered doing before. And it was his encouragement that made me put it down as my first preference. And also during my PhD, my PhD supervisor, Professor Jonathan Karapetis, who's now the director of the Telethon Kids Institute, actually said to me that I could do anything that I wanted to do. And I think these are very powerful words when you're early on in your career and you're starting out, because I think women in particular are often riddled by self-doubt and the imposter syndrome is actually real, as I'm sure we're gonna talk about tonight. The second thing for me has really allowing myself to take the time out to travel. During my um, medical degree, I took a gap year between third and fourth year because I really wasn't sure that medicine was actually for me. I traveled through the US, uh, Europe and Africa and came back actually really energized and excited to finish my medical degree. I also did two years of um, training in Canada after finishing my paediatric training with my husband and then two young children. We worked and lived in Toronto and that was also very challenging, learning to live in a city where the temperature was minus 20 and I was driving with two small children in the car and I'd have to turn the radio off so that I could concentrate. Uh, but it was a really exciting time and gave me a lot of perspective on my career and the other opportunities that were out there rather than doing all my training in Melbourne and at the Children's Hospital. So what are my pearls for some of you tonight who are thinking, oh, would I do medicine, would I do a career, um, you know, follow a clinician scientist pathway? Well, the first thing I would say is perseverance, and I feel like I'm testament to perseverance. I think it takes a lot of courage to aim high, um, you know, to go for fellowships and grants that are highly competitive when you actually know that failure is probably the most likely outcome. For example, for myself, it took four or five years for me to get my first CIA NHMRC grant, and I was so proud of myself when I really reached that goal. 
So I think if I was you sitting at the start of my career, I would really be realising early that failure actually is part of the journey and nothing to be ashamed of. It's something to be expected and to learn from. And that we should actually reframe success to include the opportunities, the collaborations, and the real world impact from our work rather than counting papers and grants. The second thing I would say is be bold. Some of the most um, exciting and important collaborations and people I work with have come from cold approaches. What do I mean by that? Well, I remember as an early postdoc student, I actually emailed the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine and said that I'd like to write a perspective piece on rotavirus vaccines. And she said, okay, I, was, I couldn't believe it. And so that was my first and only New England Journal of Medicine uh, paper. <laughs> The second was I actually emailed the now Professor of Global Health at Yale University and said that I was really inspired by his work and I'd like to work with him. And he said, absolutely. And he was organising a workshop in the US, he invited me over, and he's now one of my key collaborators and friends, and he has absolutely stimulated my career and put me on the global stage. And that would never have happened if I hadn't just knocked on the door. The third thing I would say is it's taken me a long time to learn this, but realise early the power of sponsorship. When you're working part-time with small children, the opportunity to travel and network is actually limited. So you might not have the opportunities that are the same that are experienced by your full-time colleagues, often men. But if someone gives you a seat at the table and an opportunity to shine and you take it by both hands, it can be an incredible career stimulant and I've had a number of those opportunities. And lastly, I would say, don't feel the pressure to do it uh, all at once. Take time. I wish I had perhaps taken a bit more time. I think women can have it, but perhaps not all at the same time. So I would say that I'm extremely proud to be a woman in science and that I've enjoyed the diversity and excitement that this path has offered. And now, particularly in my role within the Melbourne Medical School, I am very excited about having the opportunity to sponsor and mentor and lift up as many women as I can to see them shine. So thanks very much. Thanks, Margie. It's hard to follow a talk by you. It's very inspiring. Um, so, um, good evening, and thank you for the opportunity to be here um, this evening. So, um, where are the slides? Oh, here we go. So, um, my first career ambition was to be an artist. Um, but, and apparently I was quite fond of drawing kittens. And a well-meaning relative um, had a look at my kitten drawings and suggested that maybe I wasn't going to cut it in the art scene. And, and so it was about the age of 12 that I thought seriously about becoming a doctor. My family has a very strong history of cancer. A number of um, relatives in my family carry the BRCA2 gene, which is a gene mutation which increases the risk of breast, ovarian and a number of other cancers. Uh, my mum and two of my sisters carry this gene. Um, so my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was quite young and I think it was seeing her go through her, um, her treatments, her surgeries, her chemotherapy, and seeing the care she was provided by doctors, that really inspired me to think about becoming a doctor. Um, particularly the doctors that cared for her and saw her as more than her cancer diagnosis, that she was a mother, an auntie, a friend, a sister, maybe even a person. 
And so really seeing the way that they provided care to her, it was quite inspiring to me. I've taken the scenic route to a career in medicine. I initially studied nutrition and dietetics. Um, I'm not really sure why I chose nutrition. Um, my mum worked in a chocolate factory and <laughs> we literally, no joke, we literally had endless supplies of chocolate in my household. So I'm not sure if it was some internal rebellion thing that I decided to study nutrition. Um, but I, I did, and I actually ended up really enjoying it. And I think nutrition, I'm still very passionate about it, and it aligns well with me around my values in public health, because if you've worked in nutrition or in that space, you'll know that nutrition is very closely linked to poverty, education, income, your postcode. And so I think it actually did align well with my early values um, in public health. So I, um, after graduating nutrition, I uh, spent a few years working um, as a public health nutritionist in the Torres Strait and Cape York. And it was here working in far north Queensland um, with the rural GPs and the public health physicians that that niggle to study medicine returned. I saw these doctors working in communities providing really holistic care, which recognised that people and the, the, the causes of, um, of, of both good health and poor, poor health was linked to, was multifactorial and interconnected, social, economic, historical, cultural factors. And I wanted to practise medicine like this. So I decided to apply for postgraduate medicine, and after sitting the GAMSAT twice, I got into Melbourne University. So after a few years of um, clinical work, a, a diploma of obstetrics and gynaecology, a master of public health, and a couple of kids along the way, I'm now training to become a public health physician. Um, I have a special interest in global maternal and newborn health, and most of my work now is um, at the Burnett Institute, based in Papua New Guinea. I'm currently coordinating a multi-site quality improvement project to improve the quality of maternal and newborn care. And I also continue to work at the Royal Women's Hospital um, in a clinic in the abortion and contraceptive services clinic. So I just want to share five um, maybe tips or things that I've found helpful along my way so far and see if they might be um, helpful for you as well. So the first point, which I think Margie also mentioned as well, was about spending time working or studying outside of Melbourne. I've been fortunate to work in North Queensland, um, in Northern Territory, in rural Victoria. I've also spent time in Geneva, in, in India and in Samoa. And I think it's really important to, um, to work in different places because you see how different organisations work, how different people approach different issues, um, particularly if you have a mix of working for public or private or non-government and government. And I think... Um, Stepping outside of it, even though how amazing Melbourne is and we love the coffee, um, it's, it's, I think it is good to um, step outside of Melbourne. The second point is about being involved in research. Um, I started, um, I guess, my involvement in research as an honours year. So after my undergraduate year, I undertook an honours year. And this is a really good taster for, um, for what the research world was like and providing some foundational skills. And um, I was then involved in you know, small research projects along the way as both a nutritionist and a doctor. And last year, I decided to, um, to go the full way and embark on a PhD. Um, and I think whether you are a full-time researcher or you just um, do a, you know, a small amount of research in whatever work you do, research skills are widely ap applicable in a range of roles. And I think if you can get involved in some research, it's, it's a really good um, thing. The next point is teaching. 
Um, so I've been lecturing at the university um, for about five years, uh, teaching nutrition um, and more recently First Nations Health into the medical program. Um, and before that, I've done some, some tutoring and different things like that. That was quite the first... Um, so I, the, the teaching of nutrition came about because I've been an ongoing advocate of more nutrition in medical education. Um, and eventually they said, well, why don't you give some lectures then? <laughs> and so um, that was quite a surreal experience because I think having that, you know, that childhood dream of being a doctor and then that first lecture of lecturing to a group of medical students in the curriculum, I remember sort of stopping and going, oh my gosh, is this, is this happening? Um, and I've, re I've really enjoyed teaching students. I think it, it teaches you how to break down complex issues um, and it also has given me some um, more confidence in public speaking, I think, when you have to lecture a, a cohort of 350 medical students. The fourth point is mentors, and probably some of these faces might look familiar to you. Some of them are um, based at Melbourne Uni. Um, these are um, the mentors that I have and that are still active mentors for me. Um, I've been really lucky to have some incredible mentors who have been so generous in sharing their time and their wisdom and advice. And I know everybody says find a mentor, but really um, mentors have been um, incredibly important. And yeah, and I'm so fortunate to have these wonderful mentors who lift me up and, um, and give me their pearls of wisdom along the way. The fifth, um, the fifth point is about looking after yourself. I think it's really, and like Maggie said, it's not, you know, it's not a, um, it's a sprint, it's a marathon. And, and enjoy yourself along the way. Make time to do things that re-energise you, the people that you love being with, have lots of fun. Um, this is, these are my, my kids and my family. So, yeah, I think making sure that you do spend time having fun is really important. <clears throat> so after all that, I've actually decided to become an artist. Um, <laughs> No, just joking. Um, as you see, I'm still not very good. Um, but I've moved on from doing kittens um, to a, this is a lino cut print. Um, I think you know the medical and research world is recognising that we do need to do things outside of our, um, you know, our clinical or our research work. And so the RACP Congress last year had an art exhibition, and I decided to um, just throw this in for some fun. Um, but I think whatever stage you're at, whether you're an undergraduate student or a master's or a PhD, um, I just want to encourage you to, to make the most of the opportunities that present themselves and, and challenge yourself and do things that constantly inspire you and keep the fire inside of you glowing. And I'd like to leave you with a quote from a very famous um, doctor. <laughs> so, you have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself in any direction you choose. You're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting, so get on your way. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I feel extremely inspired after those two, and it's a hard act to follow. But um, I feel incredibly lucky to be here and fortunate. It takes a village for me to get here. It takes a village to raise a child, but it also takes a village for us to get to where we are because we're so well supported and I'm so lucky to have been supported by my family, my extended family, my friends, my mentors, and my work colleagues. This is my mum. So about 25 years ago, when I decided to do medicine, she said, darling, don't do medicine, please. It's way too hard. Um, at that time, I didn't really understand what she meant. She's an anaesthetist, she's now 72, and she's still practicing. To her, she felt that she had to give up almost all of her career to raise a family. 
And until I had my own two children, I actually didn't really realise what she meant, and now I understand. I think we've come a long way in these 25 years, and I've been extremely lucky to have been elevated by a lot of people who have supported me in this journey. So just a little bit about my journey, I guess. Um, I kind of did the traditional way of doing medicine, met my husband during um, medical school, um, and then we, I, I decided to do paediatrics, and we were very lucky that we were able to kind of juggle our relationship. Um, he ended up doing surgery, and we had pretty busy work-life um, schedules. Um, we were able to go to the US together for his fellowship, and during that time, I actually explored doing research. So just similar to, I guess, um, Margie and Lise, we um, you know, really enjoyed the time away from Melbourne, learned a lot from that experience in terms of life experiences, and brought back a lot of, um, I think, um, you know, perspective in terms of what to do. Um, I then decided to do a PhD, and the reason for that is really these two people, they're the champions, really, of myself and my career, Professor um, Melissa Wake and Professor Harriet Hiscock. They both brought very different perspectives to um, work and to life and set really good um, examples of what I wanted to aspire to be. Um, and it was really those two people who kind of you know, spurred me on and I ended up doing a PhD where I looked at the role of probiotics for infant colic or infant crying. During my PhD, I had actually had my first child. She, of course, was very hard, cried all night. One night, I was holding her the whole night, and my husband said, oh, how was that? How, how was your night? And I go, we didn't hear any of that. But I think that brought a bit of perspective as well um, in terms of my PhD, because I, at that time, I was recruiting women who were in the most desperate situation um, to find, I guess, some kind of solution to the baby's crying. Um, I was very lucky I ended up being able to publish my um, results in a very prestigious journal in the um, BMJ. And that was actually quite an interesting experience because um, I faced one of my first challenges. My trial was the only trial in the world and the biggest in the world that was a negative trial. At that time, there were a few small trials across the globe, which showed the probiotic to be effective, but mine was not. However, I, I was able to, I guess, stand up to my own belief that I did the right thing, and when this got published, I actually received about 11 what we call rapid responses online. People were extremely fiery, um, some very you know, personal comments on my methodology and on myself. I en ended up collaborating with these researchers. Um, somehow, I was very lucky. I met someone who was very well regarded in the field, and I was able to actually lead an international collaboration, and we did a meta-analysis together. It was a, called an individual participant meta-analysis, where we pulled the raw data from these researchers, and we were trying to answer the question of whether pro this product particularly helped crying babies. So I, th I learned a lot from that, to stand up to your own belief and to believe in yourself, I guess. Um, and you know, that really kind of spurred me on. Um, so this was the collaboration in 2014. Um, it, you can see that the de demeanor of the faces is a bit different from um, 2016. And I, 
you know, still have, you know, contact with these researchers. Interestingly, since my PhD, I actually changed direction. It was a time of a lot of uncertainty because of my negative trial. I couldn't find a way of really taking my research forward and expanding on it. At that time, it was, um, again, because of my mentors that I could really find my way, and I changed my direction. And now my research focuses on uh, childhood hearing loss. And I've been really privileged that as a clinician, I can use research really to answer some really important questions that parents have for me. So when I see parents of children with hearing loss, they still have lots of very basic questions like, why does my child have hearing loss? What can I do for my child? What will happen to my child? These kinds of questions spur me on with my research. So now I have a research group of about six or seven research assistants, postdocs, and PhD students. Um, and our aim really is to help answer these questions for these families. Last of all, I just wanted to end with saying that these are my greatest achievements in the end. Um, I, I feel that my children really are my greatest achievements and putting that into perspective really helps. My other bits of advice, um, follow your heart, follow your dreams. Don't get put off by what other people tell you. If you love something and you have the passion for it, then whatever challenge you face, whatever struggle there is in front of you, you'll be able to overcome that. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me this evening. Uh, my name's Kara, and I was thinking about when I was invited, uh, having an early career perspective, I was really nervous on what my voice could add when I might be in a really similar position to a lot of yourselves. You might be undergraduate or graduate students, you may be in research, or you might be going into the clinical fields. And I thought, well, I have a coveted career as a student who has managed to be at university for about a consecutive decade. Um, but those thoughts in and of themselves made me think, well, I'm having doubts about how my perspective might be able to help you. Uh, and that reminded me that what I really want to share today is those feelings of when you're not sure whether your voice in a room is needed, whether you're a woman or an early career professional, or perhaps English is your second language, or perhaps you're a person of colour. There might be times where you feel nervous, and I want to share these situations where myself, I've wondered about how my voice will be welcomed, and I want to talk about how I've kind of worked through those uh, in my short career thus far. So really briefly, uh, I kind of remember talking to my grandpa and saying, oh, I'm going to go to university. And he said, oh, university, that's for rich city folk. Uh, you're probably going to come back a greenie. Uh, and I can't confirm or deny that. Uh, <laughs> but I, I remember wondering my place at uni and I 
kind of spent a, a few years dabbling in some different areas. So before I found my home in behavioral science, I actually studied politics and languages. Uh, and I also come from a bilingual home. So there were different reasons that I felt I may have had a tendency towards that imposter syndrome. So, you know, we talk about that feeling of being worried about being ousted as a fraud or um, as incompetent in a room otherwise surrounded by experts. Uh, and so I thought that through uh, and I kind of said, well, in my kind of short career thus far, I've realized that every time we have a diversity in voice, every time we're able to foster different perspective and experiences, those have been the times where we've been able to most uh, in-depthly engage with stuff. So, for example, this week we welcomed students into biological psychology and I ran a couple of tutorials where we had uh, graduate diploma students who have studied other careers before they came to us. There was someone who studied fine arts who was really interested in seeing how uh, music therapy was something that they could pursue in their career. And there were also international students who were able to really provide us a rich cross-cultural perspective that allowed us to spend a lot of time engaging with cognitive neuroscience in a way that I otherwise wouldn't expect. So these have kind of been the times where we've, I felt that we've been able to grow together in voice. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to leave you with this. Uh, there's going to be times where uh, I want you to never talk yourself out of the rooms that you've earned the right to be in. We might, for whatever reason, feel as though uh, we're maybe uh, in academia, it's more likely we're gonna enter a room as a woman and be a minority. There might be many other reasons why you feel kind of nervous or different from the voices that have been represented uh, in the past. And those are the rooms and the places where your voice is needed more than ever. It means that another voice has really been the predominant perspective and you're able to kind of redirect your nerves and think about how your perspective can shine light on a new idea. I think that's something that we can kind of all do together and I, you know, myself um, can't wait to see what all of us together can accomplish when we promote diversity in voice and perspective in science and in research more broadly. Thanks. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to come and speak today. And I have to say, my job now, or my career, is about um, giving speeches all the time, and I don't think I've been more intimidated by a bunch of absolutely extraordinary women sitting here in the front row. Um, it's been wonderful to listen to their stories, but also for me to sit there and reflect on the fact that I've kind of lived the life that you've all lived, and I think I've had a little bit of an experience of all the things that you've been experiencing all throughout my career, um, but now I've been sort of ejected out of that career and planted in this completely different world. And it's very much double, sort of, it's, it, it feels like I'm living in a parallel universe. It's quite bizarre. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to come and speak today. And um, I suppose rather than go over my career of, of what, where I've been in, in medicine and in science, I actually thought I'd talk about it from the political point of view because, um, in fact, I would probably say many similar things, particularly to Margie and Val, because we've worked together and I hate to... I hate to say this, but I have actually been their mentors, and I was so proud to hear what you had to say because you've grown into these amazing women over the last 20 years I've watched you grow, and um, I think it's extraordinary when you see what women can really do. 
But I've now moved into an area um, where women are not doing so well, and I've had to reflect very deeply on why that is the case. And um, I hope you don't mind saying this, Val and Margie, but I kind of think that um, the Murdochs um, and, and other paediatric environments, child health here in Australia and around the world, is already kicking well above its weight. Uh, because uh, I was the Equal Opportunities Officer for the Murdoch Children's Research for about five years. And I joked, and I probably shouldn't, but I used to joke I was there for the men because they were the minority. It was meant to be a joke, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but that's because the Murdoch is 80% women. We have such a strong um, group of women, and I, I never used to think in my workplace about being a woman because I didn't need to. I didn't need to walk into a room and think, oh, how am I going to have to stand up to these men? Because we, we were all the women in the room. And I think that provides you with a very uh, special perspective because if you are growing up and being nourished by an environment where you don't have to think that you're any different, that you don't have to think about, am I a second-class citizen, where you actually have the opportunities, then um, perhaps, perhaps that sort of sense of being able to do it um, is something that other people in other environments don't have. And I would say paediatrics in particular is one area around the world where women are doing so well. And I wonder whether that is because we have always been doing well. Women have been the champions of children. You know, we are the, the champions of children, have always been for time immemorial. So now that I've moved into a world of politics where those expectations have changed, I've had to really question uh, why I feel the way I feel and, and how that translates into this new set of opportunities, I would say. Um, I have been to a lot of International Women's Day panels in the past, and one thing I would note uh, is that we, I believe, are in the middle of a social revolution. And it, it can be very hard for us to quite understand that. So I'm going to ask a question of the people in this room. Of the people in this room, your grandmothers, how many of them went to university? Hands up if you had a grandmother who went to university. That's highly educated, just saying. Well done. How many of you had a mother who went to university? Correct, right. Many more. And then presumably, I think all of you are at university. Hands up if you're at university. Is that correct? You're all at university, right? So, so you are one of the most highly educated pop parts of our population. You know, only 30% of the community go to university. And, so, and quite a lot of your mothers went to universities, but hardly any of your grandmothers went to university. That is a very short time frame in the history of mankind. And um, I remember going out um, when I was chair of a local school board, going out to lunch with um, the dean of um, Melbourne, um, St Paul's um, in Melbourne. And he was telling me his life story and how proud he was of the fact that he was the first in his family to go to university. And um, I then reflected, I was the first woman of my family to go to university. Yet I come from a highly educated family. My mother uh, went to the school I went to in Melbourne and my grandmother did as well. So very educated, but only to secondary school. And my mother died about 25 years ago. And she wrote me a letter when I was seven that was put into a millennial capsule. And my siblings and I went up to open the millennial capsule in 2000. And I didn't realize that she'd written us a letter. So we went up to, to read the letters we'd written to ourselves for five cents, by the way, which is a lot of money in those days, back in the day. And um, my mother's letter fell out, and it was a letter to each of us. And the letter to me was incredibly prescient. It was written in 1972, and I was a very small child. And she captured the essence of who I was even then, a bit bumptious, um, a bit prone to sort of pushing the envelope, you might say. 
Um, but what she said is the two things that really struck me. One was I was going to have to work out how to work work-life balance because she could see that our generation were going to be the first to really enter the workforce in major numbers. And, and she was right. So my generation, I'm at the very top end of Gen X. I'm the eldest person, in, you know, eldest year of Gen X. And we have been at that forefront, that vanguard of change, of women having to manage work-life balance um, in that you know, inter integrative way. Um, but the second thing she said was she expected great things for me uh, because she felt that I was very intelligent and so therefore I would go a long way. And it was what was interesting was that she decided that the three things that I had on offer uh, was that I was either going to be a secretary, a nurse or a teacher because those were the three things that really intelligent women did. And she thought I'd probably be a teacher because they were the most intelligent uh, women she had decided, even though she was a nurse. And interestingly enough, I ended up being a professor at university. But, uh, and at that time, I was in an academic environment. But what is interesting is that the plans and vision for my mother for me um, is very different than me for my, my children. I have four children. One of them is here with me tonight, two girls and two boys. And their, um, their aspirations and inspirations can be drawn both from their mother and from their father. But in my generation, many of us drew our inspiration from our fathers, not because we didn't love our mothers, but because our fathers were the ones who had careers, not jobs or had fully, fully in the home. And so many of my generation have been inspired by men. Um, your generation, I'm sure, will be inspired by both men and women. So the Gen X sandwich generation have had this one spot in time when our mothers were inspired by their mothers, our daughters will be inspired by both their mothers and their fathers, um, but our generation, I think, have mostly often been inspired. In fact, is that true? Have you been inspired by your fathers or the older ones? <laughs> the NXs in the room? Um, and so I think there is a lot of transition going on, and that makes me reflect that we are going through this social revolution um, quite, quite, in quite an interesting way. And we can either see it as a glass half empty or a glass half full. But it was wonderful to hear so many women hearing um, more about it being a glass um, half full, that, that actually the opportunities for us as women are amazing and immense, but there, are still, there is still a long way to go in certain disciplines. So, so we know that things like child health and, and medicine um, are full of, of women, uh, but we do also know that the disciplines like STEM, uh, mathematics, um, engineering, are really struggling to have women enter in, in greater numbers. And I'm interested in some of the things that the university is now trying to do, uh, sometimes um, to the uh, rancor of some people in the community when we say, you know, we're going to drop the ATAR score for women so they can get into engineering. And you know, that's meant to be helpful, but some people think that's insulting. So who knows what the real answer is. But what I will say is that um, um, in, in the area of politics, I think all, all of us, all of us need to make sure that we are um, becoming more politically engaged because that's where the money is, honestly. That is the last career, I think, that is showing that we are not stepping up as leaders across the full spectrum that we can do. And I, I grew up in the 1980s and uh, Margaret Thatcher was the first female prime minister um, and everyone said, that's it, you know, the glass ceiling has finally been broken. But I think that there's a long way to go. And uh, my great-great-great-grandmother's great maiden niece was um, in the UK, the first female cabinet member in 1930. 
Um, and I would think she'd think that in the last 90 years we haven't really made a huge amount of progress in political representation for women, but we are hopefully moving in the right direction. Um, the other thing I would say is that being inside the tent in, po in, in politics has been very interesting to see um, how much work is going on with regards to trying to help women more on our journey. And it is very encouraging uh, to hear that there is a recognition that women have special needs with regards to managing their career and their lives um, and doing that in a, in a way that helps to make them feel happy and that their families are supported, but most importantly, that they're financially safe. Because uh, if you're worried about being able to support yourself financially, you don't have the ability to also provide support for the others that you care for. So women's uh, economic stability and their financial literacy and their abilities to manage their job um, and also to ensure that they have good superannuation to plan for their future um, and to be go in and out of career situations in a way that is not going to uh, penalise them is incredibly important. And, and that's one thing that I've uh, had a lot of opportunity to influence and it's been a, a great, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, great privilege to be able to be on the inside of the tent, hopefully influencing the, gen the agenda for women um, and for families. But I will say there's a couple of um, small bond notes that I thought I'd, I'd mention that um, reminds me of sometimes that the the light is not being shone um, fully across the extent we might like it to be. And I do remember when I was being interviewed for a Career Development Award, and I won't say where I was being interviewed for, but um, uh, there was someone in the room, and it wasn't a man, said to me, so have you finished having children yet? And I don't think this person, who was a woman, noticed that what she was saying was incredibly wrong. You know, to say those sorts of things is just not right. And they were, those sort of subtle forms of prejudice can be very problematic. Uh, but I found that there were so many women who were inspirational as well. And I, I often say that women are very good um, at, at saying why they can't do something, but sometimes we're, we're not so willing to say what we can do. Uh, but I do think that if you've seen someone else do it, you kind of say, well, I can do that too. And I remember Priscilla Kincaid-Smith um, was um, a woman who's a renal physician and she became the president of the World Medical Organization. And she had four children. And at the time I'd been going through this whole jokes about my ability to undertake contraception. So I had one child, that was okay. Two was good. Three, I literally had lots of people saying, have you not worked out contraception yet? As a joke, I mean, and then the fourth child, they all said, that's it, your career is over. So I had a lot of early prejudice about the ability to have a family and have a life, and I or have a career, I should say. And I remember hearing that Priscilla Kincaid-Smith had had four children and she was the president of the World Medical Organization, and I thought, well, there you go, you can manage to do both. <laughs> but, but I think I'd reflect some of the comments that were made that sometimes you can't have it all at once. And so we have to be easy on ourselves um, about how we get that balance right. And you have to work out what is right for you. So the one piece of advice that I would give to the women in the audience is, is seek advice widely, but only listen to what you care about. So being open-minded and listening to what people have to offer can be really helpful, but only you know what is right for you. And that is the wonderful thing about what we have now. We have so much choice. You can choose to be uh, a woman who wants to have a large family and a career, or you can choose to be a woman who doesn't work. I mean, you can choose all of those things. The choice is yours, and you need to work out what you want. But also remember that the period of life that you're in now doesn't last forever, no matter what you think. 
And so having children seems like it's a long period of time, but it can go in a flash. My children are all leaving home now. Or you might feel that you're a part of your career and you may never want to get married, but that may change. And it's okay. It's okay to have that variety. It's okay to feel self-doubt. It's okay to not be sure about the future. Um, because none of us, I would say, in this seat here, have had a very clear idea about what our future would hold. We've been open to opportunity. We've been open to failure. We've been resilient through failure, because I can tell you I've had a lot of failures, uh, and you just keep going. And it's the journey, not the destination, that's the most enjoyable part of the life. There's not some great gold prize at the end of all this. We're all out there with our own cross to bear, and it's about the partnerships that we form, the relationships that we have, and at the end of the day, the people we love that make it all worthwhile. Thank you. So thank you to these fantastic speakers. That was just a tour de force. And um, I'm sure, like me, you've got plenty of questions. So please raise your hand. Uh, we have microphones, but this is a lovely, beautifully designed building, that, uh, room that enables us to hear your voice quite clearly down here. So uh, perhaps um, just raise your hand when you've got a question. But I'm going to start by introducing myself. Uh, thank you, Sarah, for, for already doing that to some extent. Um, but I'm Megan Munsey, and, and it's my privilege today to kind of, I suppose, tease out some of these issues that we've talked about today and, and, and what a, a stage has been set by all of you. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to, speak, hearing you speak and, and, you know, moved by your open, openness. So thank you very much for being, making such a personal uh, story. Um, I also think it's good to perhaps reflect a little bit about the, the title of the book that brought us here and the story that it is captured within those pages. And just following on from, um, from Katie's um, uh, comment of, uh, about the, the role of parliamentarians, I, I thought it was interesting to, to think about the fact that the book was published back in, 2000, uh, in 1991. Um, and of course, that was a year before um, Australian women were granted the right to vote. And at the time it was uh, published, it was heralded by many as a, a great Australian novel, but particularly by the Melbourne suffrage leader, Viva, uh, Vida uh, Goldstein. Uh, and she used uh, this fictionalised depiction of the limited choices women had at that time. Because as you might remember, Sibylia, who's the main heroine of this tale, uh, wants to leave her harsh, dry, um, rural, um, uh, home to seek fame and I suppose fortune to some extent. It doesn't quite work out as she had anticipated but it painted a very bleak picture for what life was like for women in the, in the late 1800s. And um, of course she, um, to some perhaps people's eyes, foolishly turned down the, the hand of a wealthy, handsome young man uh, and, and, and talks about uh, or reflects a lot about how she wanted to have uh, equality and, and choice. And I suppose bringing back the theme of tonight's event, equality for equal, I think is really important. We've heard lots of uh, examples about that tonight. But, you know, this idea of you can't be what you can't see, You've all somehow mentioned that. We've heard about being a first-generation sort of um, scholar. Uh, you know, what, what has been some of the, the, the turning points for you or what could have happened, do you think, uh, in your careers that would have made a big difference? 
um, or perhaps what you'd like to see now in your workplace to help the next generation. So I don't mind who wants to grasp the microphone, but I'd just like to hear what you think about that kind of idea about how can you be what you can't see? Well, um, thank you. It's a great question. I mean, I might pick you up on what I'd love to see. And um, I remember speaking to an institute director and saying that, um, you know, it wouldn't be great if children weren't regarded as a woman's problem, that it would be the community's problem or something we care about as a community. And I said, wouldn't it be great if men had, you know, the ability to take time off equally instead of if a woman decided not to. This is quite a while ago. I was about to ask you when it was. Yeah, it was a while ago. <laughs> and so now we have that more, but not as much as I would like. But this person said, well, if men took time off, they wouldn't be taken seriously. Mm. I thought, that there, there's a problem. That's mm. a problem. So what you're saying is you don't take me seriously because I've mm. taken time off. And that's the problem. So mm. I, I've often said that um, women bring to the table more, and that's not true for every woman, by the way, but more of an interest in, care, in caring. And that might be caring for your parents or caring for your sibling or caring for your children. And I think as a society, if we value caring and we say men who care, women who care, transgender who care, you know, we don't have to you know, put them into boxes. Not people who care person, yeah. is the important part and that society values people who care. And that's true um, not just for paid work but also for unpaid work. And the one thing about women's work, so to speak, has been it has been traditionally unpaid. And we are in the middle of transitioning it really to paid work. And how do we value that? So of course some of the most slowly paid people are the people caring in a paid capacity in childcare and teaching and even nursing. And that's again women's work. So we need to make sure that we are championing uh, the care that we provide as a society, whether it's aged care, childcare, teachers, nurses, and that we value it properly because a caring society I think is a better society. Any other comments from the panel? Yeah, I think I would agree with that as well. I think we do need to value our carers. And my husband also, um, I feel really bad I didn't acknowledge him actually when I was speaking. That was <laughs> going to okay. be like my sixth point was find a supportive partner um, <laughs> because he really has been an absolute champion of, of my career and of me and supporting me. But I would agree with Katie. I think it's still very difficult for men to get time off and to be able to feel free to be the carer. So I think that's still an issue. Would you agree, Val? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Like Margie, my husband's also a surgeon. So um, surgeons are not looked upon very favourably if they took time off. Um, and if we don't have that cultural shift in thinking through how this can be done, then we're always going to be struggling as the female population, I think. Yeah, and I think reflecting as you say, we both have husbands that are surgeons. I still think there are some... Katie's right, at, at the Murdoch Children's, there is a huge um, example of how women can shine. And I must say, as a, as a woman, I never felt that my gender would hold me back in the areas that I've worked in. But I know that my colleagues, for example, females who are working in orthopaedic surgery, do not feel the same. So I still think that there are many areas where there is a lot of improvement and change to come. I think surgery for women is still really tough. Doesn't mean that they don't do it or it's not rewarding. But it still poses a lot of challenges. And there's a, you know, I still think there's difficulty, um, uh, you know, in, in diversity. I think we can do a lot more around diversity mm. for, based on people's religion and their sexual preferences. There's still a long way to go. Uh, Cara, what do you think as, a, as, as, a, as a, a younger member of the panel? I mean, what's, what's been your experience around flexibility as a student? Uh, and and, and uh, you've talked a lot about diversity as well. So I was just wondering if you could t t speak a little bit more about both those points. 
Yeah, so, so in terms of diversity, I think, you know, obviously I was talking a lot about imposter syndrome before and how sometimes, yeah, when you feel different, that might um, foster some of those feelings. But I've actually noticed that um, as, uh, as someone who's kind of studied across different areas, as someone who speaks multiple languages, I can actually harness that, that as a strength in my own research and as um, as a student. So, uh, for example, we do lots of clinical interviews in our research, and these are kind of semi-structured clinical interviews where uh, I think a lot of the questions uh, assume kind of a structure of whether that's cultural or linguistic understanding. And so I think where we can do better is in our own research, I can obviously speak um, from a science perspective, is to step back occasionally and just think about the the bias that we're assuming in some of the things that we're doing. Uh, I think I've been able to harness uh, my bilingual background and step back and say, well, I think that we can do better in um, framing this research so that we're able to kind of capture a wider audience. I mean, we're doing research and clinical practice to have the widest uh, impact possible to be able to uh, inform and help the widest group possible. So I think um, myself, I see going forward um, where, where we can step back as women and support diversity in lots of different ways. Uh, I think that will promote um, respect and, and us being able to take time off if we need. Uh, I don't I don't think that's inherently a gendered issue. There's lots of reasons we might need flexibility in our career. And I think just by being transparent and recognizing those boundaries right now, we can do a lot better by just putting them forward. So, Thank you. So we've got a question from the floor. Uh, my name's Jill Sewell. Um, I know quite a few members of, members of the panel. Um, I'm just reflecting that each of the speakers today have, and, and, and Margie started off saying this, have taken a, 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 a varied route to get where they are. They haven't just gone straight down a tram track, straight from junior school to senior school to university. And tough though it is, and demanding though it is, I, I wonder when you do get there, how much more value you have as leaders with what you've learned along that way, along that way with that variable pathway to get there, and what, what capacity that you have for thinking about things, thinking about change, and thinking collaboratively. So in, in comparison with many of our male colleagues, who I think much more often take a very, what I would call a tram track approach to their career, I wonder in the end if we're actually advantaged by all this difficulty, if we've got the resilience to get there. Thank you, fabulous question. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely think that, I mean, obviously you've seen I've take, done a few different things um, and I think it's really added to um, my position now and how I kind of view the world and um, I, I, yeah, I don't regret any of the, taking the longer pathway um, and the experiences I've had and nutrition was a fantastic grounding, um, particularly in, in public health and inspired me early and um, and yeah, I think that if you you know if you do take the long way, you do different courses and things. It it really only adds to who you are and your skill set. It doesn't take away. So I think that yeah, if you're feeling like you're on the maybe the longer path, or maybe you know I know people that have have tried to get into courses or get PhD scholarships or things a few times, and a few people talked about the failures, but that's as much as the journey as as the successes are. 
And if I can add to that, uh, for example, doing my um, previous studies in psychological science, and now I'm delving into kind of the depth of microbiology, by having that uh, perspective and past studies, I've kind of been able to situate this research body in kind of a, uh, the wider human. So in, in gut microbiome research, we have kind of insufficiently considered things like someone's diet, someone's uh, lifestyle factors, medications, and interactions with mood. And so I think it was only by having my varied pathway that I was kind of able to offer that perspective to what is otherwise a relatively, um, you know, specific science, uh, looking at microorganisms we can't even see. So I think um, we really need to promote interdisciplinary research because we can always look from those other perspectives and other possible studies to inform uh, the science we're doing now. So I would definitely agree that not having a tram track journey, although it's um, brought some nerves uh, along the way, has really enhanced the way that I can do research now. Katie? Um, when I was a child, I used to horse ride. I lived in Albury, and um, I remember the first few times I fell off my horse, and my mother always made me get straight back upon the horse um, to, to overcome my fears, which was actually quite a hard thing to do. And she used to say to me, you're not a good horse rider until you've fallen off 13 times. <laughs> so she really embraced failure. Why 13? I don't know. She made that up. <laughs> but by that time, I was so desensitised to falling off, it just didn't matter. But that was sort of that gumption to get back on the horse. And, um, and I would say that that sort of was something that was really sort of part of my DNA when I was sort of going forward. And, and when I used to sort of, when I talked to, to people, particularly women, about um, you, you really, sometimes you go at something and, and you're knocking on the door and they won't open it, you keep knocking. And some people say, just kick down the door. I'm not that person. I'd say, just go find another door and you'll find you open the, push the door, it opens and there is an Aladdin's cave. <laughs> and so, you know, you don't always think, you know, like life has this way of working out, I think. If you just have the right set of values, you work hard and, you know, you'll be happy doing whatever you're happy doing if you're a happy person so, is what some people say. So I think maintain that glass half full. Um, and embrace uncertainty yes. and just keep pushing on those resilience, doors. Resilience is the other thing and in getting into politics now um, I hear all these people who get very disappointed when something doesn't go right. I'm like, I'm used to failure. I'm a scientist. You know, 13% success rate. You know, we've built resilience for sure. And, you, and, and what happens as a scientist is you end up saying you, you end up getting it better at making sure before you go, you know, run for that grant that the idea is right. So often we'll be workshopping it with these people and come on, tear it apart. You know, make sure it's a good idea. If it's a good idea, stick with it. But if it's not a good idea, just throw it in the bin and start again. And that sort of resilience about it's the idea, so play the ball and not the man. And if the ball is right, the game will work. And the strength of, and have faith in your own judgment, I think, as well. Yeah. Have, have strength. So I hate to do this, but I'm conscious that uh, we're running a little over time and we want to go out and have some less formal mingling outside over, over drinks and nibbles. So I'm going to say, uh, ask you to join me in thanking this fantastic panel. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank uh, our, our sixth speaker, who was, who was unfortunately unwell, um, Bannock, and, un and unable to join us today. And I wish her a speedy recovery, because we would love to have heard her, but I'm sure we'll hear her, uh, from her at another event. Thank you, Sarah, for, for, for hosting tonight. Of course, thank you very much for coming along.
Of course, a, a night like tonight doesn't happen spontaneously. It's a lot of hard work by my colleagues Liz and, and Lou, and I thank them very much for um, putting tonight together. I think it's been absolutely stimulating. So please join us outside for drinks and nibbles and more conversation. Thank you to the panel of female leaders working in children's health at the MDHS International Women's Day My Brilliant Career event. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on the 11th of March 2020. Produced by Sylvie Van Wall. Executive Production, Dr Andy Horvath. Editing and Audio Engineering, Arch Cuthbertson. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.